The firefighters, as they were arriving that morning, were expecting that uh, effectively that the World Trade Center would just burn itself out and that it might take days for the fires to work their way up to the top uh, and burn themselves out. But most of the firefighters who went into that building that day uh, had no expectation that it could collapse. This is the Burn Bag Podcast. My name is Andre Gonoela. I'm Ryan Rosenthal. And today we are so honored to be joined by Garrett Graff. Uh, Garrett, you've had a fascinating career over the past two decades, covering a range of topics regarding homeland security, ranging from the 9-11 attacks, cybersecurity, and more recently, election security, and developments at the FBI and the Department of Homeland Security. But for this special episode, we wanted to discuss 9-11, as you covered the event so well in your book, The Only Plane in the Sky, an Oral History of 9-11. We couldn't think of a better guest to help us understand what happened on 9-11, and to also provide greater perspectives and context around that day, especially when we're looking into all the different perspectives that uh, were present on that tragic day. So thank you for joining us. Just want to echo uh, what Andre said. Thank you again for coming on the podcast, Garrett. We're approaching the 19th anniversary of 9-11, and this episode is releasing on 9-11. And so it's really great to kind of have you on to discuss these different perspectives, because there are many ways in which 9-11 has been covered. Uh, And I think your book does it in a very unique way in that uh, every American and also people who have just been impacted by 9-11 should read your book to kind of get a greater understanding of how the events unfolded and what it was like on the ground. Uh, Thanks. Um, You know, part of what drew me to this as an oral history format is to try to capture the stories of what it was like to experience 9-11 in the voices of the people who actually lived it. Because part of what stands out for me, um, you know, as you mentioned, my background is as a national security journalist and historian, and I've written, you know, all sorts of stories that hinge on 9-11. You know, in in many ways, it is the clearest dividing line that we have as a country and as a people between the 20th century and the 21st century. Yet the story that we tell people about that day, when we teach it in history books, it's a much neater and cleaner and simpler version of history than the day that those of us who were alive that uh, on 9-11 actually remember. Um, you know, that we, the way that we sort of tell the story is the attacks began at 8.46 in the morning. It was all over 102 minutes later with the collapse of the second tower. There were four planes, the Pentagon, Shanksville, the Twin Towers. And that all of that is true, obviously, but that's not the day that those of us who were alive on 9-11 experienced. You know, we didn't know when the attacks began. We didn't know what what was unfolding as it happened. We didn't know when the attacks were over and we didn't know what came next. And if you want to sort of understand 
modern America, um, I think you really need to understand the fear and the confusion and the trauma and the chaos of 9-11 because so much of the way that the U.S. government reacted, the Bush administration reacted, uh, Congress reacted, uh, was based on the fear of what would happen next. Um, you know, what the second wave could be, what could happen on September 12th, what happened in October, what could happen in 2002. And so telling the book, telling the story of 9-11 as an oral history helps to put a reader back in that day, back in that moment, knowing only what we knew at the time as the events unfolded. And I think in, in my mind, that is, um, you know, what is so critical to try to teach about the legacy of 9-11. Um, because as you guys understand, um, you know, being on the campus at the University of Michigan, um, you know, the kids coming into college now uh, were born after 9-11. This fall will mark the first year that the majority, uh, if not all, of the freshman class across the country uh, were born after 9-11. This fall will be the first presidential election where uh, people born after 9-11 will be eligible to vote. And all told, about a quarter of the U.S. population is now either too young to remember that day uh, or was born after it. And that's a real sea change in, in terms of the resonance of that day and its place in history. Certainly. And, you know, we're going to touch on these perspectives in a bit. Some of the perspectives you write on in the book, including those of the government and the nature of the chaos and the response surrounding the government's reaction to 9-11. But first, uh, we wanted to ask a bit about, you know, where you were on 9-11. You were relatively young on that day in 2001. How did those tragic events shape your professional career? And what in particular is, I guess, your most profound memory of that day? Yeah, um, I, I have a stunningly boring 9-11 story, um, which is I was at, uh, I, I was in college. I was a, a junior and just starting off my year. It was the day of registration for classes. And I was having breakfast in the dining hall. And what I remember about that day is just how clearly each moment of that day is burned into my mind. You know, I, who did not have a particularly interesting day that day, you know, I can remember everyone that I was sitting with that morning as the... Uh, as a friend walked up to the breakfast table and told us about the second crash. Um, you know, I can tell you how she was standing, how her hand was resting on the table. I can tell you, you know, uh, the exact table that I was sitting at in the dining hall, despite, you know, now not having been in that dining hall in almost 20 years. Um, and it, 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 to me, it is part of 
this history and, and that day because in many ways that was how most of the country felt about that day. You know, we, we sort of all have a memory burned into our mind of that day um, and, and that it was a national tragedy at a scale that our country had never actually seen before because we were able to, as a nation, watch it live on television. You know, the the first plane hit at 8.46 that morning Eastern time, and it uh, was live on the morning shows at 8.49 that morning, just four minutes later, really. And that you know, it, it interrupted the, the breakfast and the mornings of so many people with that first crash. Um, but part of what you see in that moment that is so powerful to me, that just like really stuck with me in that, uh, it, it, as I was doing the research for the book, is how innocent America is. Because I think one of the things that is hard to tell a new generation is just how surprising the attack actually was. That w one of the things that stands out in all of these accounts of that morning is people see that first crash at 846, they see it live on TV at 849. And most of America has one of the same set of reactions. It was a small plane. Pilot must have had a heart attack. The plane had mechanical problems. Uh, maybe it's an air traffic control error. And you see the, uh, uh, the country sort of go on about their morning. Um, you know, uh, I, I tell in the book about uh, National Security Advisor Condi Rice calling President Bush down in uh, Emma Booker Elementary School in Sarasota, Florida. Um, they talk about that first crash. And then Condi Rice goes on into her 9 a.m. staff meeting. And President Bush goes on into that classroom where he was so famously uh, reading uh, as he got word of the second attack. Um, in uh, on Capitol Hill, Brian Gunderson, the chief of staff to the House Majority Leader, um, he recalls walking in for his 9 a.m. staff meeting and seeing on the television in the reception room. You know, every congressional office has a TV in its reception area playing cable news. And he remembers seeing it. And he has this really striking quote about... Uh, I thought it was going to be like a bad school shooting, the type of thing that dominates national news but doesn't fundamentally change anyone's day. And so he goes on into his 9 a.m. staff meeting, sort of expecting that Capitol Hill is going to be having a normal day. And then, of course, you know, within 30 minutes, the Capitol is being evacuated and, you know, the country is... Um, uh, you know, the, 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 the country appears at war. Um, and that this day as it unfolds, um, is just this incredible testament to just how innocent and confused America was that morning. 
You know, I think this idea of confusion, uncertainty, and even innocence that you hinted at is important. And your book uh, kind of lays it out and uh, spells it out well. I mean, the world was watching as the second plane hit the South Tower. And really, I think in that moment, we knew the U.S. was under attack. And so when we look back at footage and news coverage, um, you know, we, we can see really how it unfolded. Uh, but we, what we don't see are the sights and the sounds, the personal interactions leading up to, during, and after the second plane hit. Uh, would you mind kind of describing what that was like, right? The, kind of the in-between moments and then the actual moment when the second plane hit. Yeah. Um, you, you know, as you were saying that this was live on TV as the second plane um, comes into the, the camera uh, and ends up impacting the South Tower. And it was a moment that just hearts stopped across the country, that this was a moment that tr absolutely transformed the way that the nation watched that day and then also the the way that the U.S. government was reacting. Um, you know, it, it became very clear that it was tech. Um, but remember, from there, though, it was another 30 minutes um, before the Pentagon was hit. And so one of the things that uh, unfolds in that next window is the government sort of still doesn't understand that the country is broadly under attack, you know, that they thought that this was a, um, that, that this was a unique attack to New York City. Um, and so one of the reasons that President Bush is not raced out of that classroom by Secret Service agents is because they did not yet understand that this was an attack against government. They thought it was just a, an attack against the World Trade Center. And so it's not really until 937 and the crash at the Pentagon that the nation begins to understand that the government and the military and the national security apparatus begin to understand that the country at large is at attack. So you sort of cover that a bit. And then uh, that third plane that hit the Pentagon, what was the scene at the Pentagon often, what was the scene at the Pentagon actually like? I mean, we saw a lot of coverage about the, the World Trade Center. We hear a lot of stories about that. But... What was actually happening on the ground at the Pentagon? I mean, there was a moment, I believe, in an interview with President Bush or Michael Morell or someone who was with President Bush on that day, where President Bush was being briefed about the Pentagon getting hit. And he immediately asks, is Rumsfeld alive? Donald Rumsfeld, the former Secretary of Defense. Uh, what was that like at the Pentagon with all that uncertainty amidst the chaos? Yeah, and this is actually one of the great leadership stories uh, of the day. Um, so the um, hijacked airliner hits the Pentagon at 937. Um, the Pentagon is a absolutely massive building and is uh, people sort of across the building sort of vaguely feel it, but uh, most of them don't realize what's happened. Um, 
a, a lot of people sort of, uh, chalk it up to sounding like a rumble in the HVAC system. And one of the things that happens is Don Rumsfeld is on the other side of the building in the Secretary of Defense's office. And he gets up from his desk and immediately heads to the crash site. Now, what's interesting about this is if you are the Secretary of Defense, that is precisely the wrong reaction to, to do in the moment. You know, the, the Secretary of Defense has critical roles in the National Command Authority. Um, you know, we spent millions and billions of dollars during the Cold War building up evacuation systems uh, in order to help ensure that there are helicopters ready to swoop in and pick up the Secretary of Defense in an emergency and whisk him to Raven Rock Mountain in, uh, in, um, in Pennsylvania, that uh, the, the backup underground bunker that is the, the Pentagon of last resort. And uh, Rumsfeld knows this. He, he, he is a former White House chief of staff. He is the Secretary of Defense. Um, he, through the 1980s, participated in a highly secret classified continuity of government operation known as the P as PS3, the Presidential Successor Support System, that uh, would have made him one of the backup doomsday White House chiefs of staff in the event of a nuclear holocaust, uh, a, a Soviet nuclear attack. He is one of the most trained people in the entire country when it comes to continuity operations and doomsday plans. And in that moment, the only moment in his entire career where he has actually needed to implement them, uh, he ignores the protocols, ignores the plans, and like a good leader, marches down to the crash site and literally helps carry wounded from the wreckage. Um, and it was, you know, exactly the right thing to do as a human being and exactly the wrong thing to do uh, as the Secretary of Defense. And what is so striking about that next hour is that Rumsfeld spends most of it down at the crash site. And so President Bush is trying to reach him. Dick Cheney at the White House is trying to reach him. Uh, no one can find Donald Rumsfeld. And for the entirety of the attacks, uh, Don Rumsfeld is absent from the military uh, decision-making process. Um, and uh, again, he... His actions that day endeared himself, endeared him to the military and his people in a way that nothing else could. I mean, it's an, you know, sort of a unique bond in many ways that Rumsfeld uh, made with the military that day. Um, but 
it was exactly the wrong thing for him to be doing, given the office that he actually was responsible for that morning. So we touch on, you know, this idea of presidential succession. Certainly Donald Rumsfeld was absent. Uh, With Flight 93, of course, many people believe that that was destined to hit Washington, D.C., whether it was the Capitol building or the White House. President Bush was in the air on Air Force One. And as we know, communication between Air Force One and the White House was not the best at certain times of the day, with phone calls being dropped. There was the uncertainty about whether the White House would be hit, and the vice president was there in the White House. Secretary of State Powell was in Latin America. And we just want to ask you, was the concept of presidential succession actually being considered on that day? Was there an actual plan that was being executed in that moment? Or was it just, you know, was it always just with, you know, Vice President Cheney? Yeah. um, And and there are sort of a couple of interesting things that stand out for this. And and this in a roundabout way is actually um, how I got interested in in writing this book in the first place was my, my last book, was uh, a book called Raven Rock, um, the story of the U.S. government's secret plan to kill it, uh, to save itself while the rest of us die. And it's the history of the U.S. government's doomsday plans through the Cold War and modern times. And it was through that lens that I became fascinated with the U.S. government's response uh, on 9-11, um, which led me it, for the 15th anniversary in 2016 to write a piece for Politico magazine called We're the Only Plane in the Sky about being aboard Air Force One that day, um, which eventually grew into this book. Um, and there are sort of two really interesting moments that day, um, sort of continuity-wise and presidency-wise. Um, well, well uh, three, really. Um, and um, the, the first is um, President Bush, once he gets aboard Air Force One on 9-11, they're, they're raced into the sky uh, in Sarasota, and Air Force One is sent up to 45,000 feet, the highest that it can actually fly. And it, uh, aboard the plane, the pilot, the Colonel Mark Tillman, the uh, Secret Service detail, and the White House military aide, um, start talking about where to go. And the president is desperate to get back to Washington. Um, because one of the things that is unique about the United States is that we put in the same person, uh, the head of state and the head of government, you know, many countries around the world actually separate those roles. So you have, you know, in the UK, the queen of England is the head of state and the prime minister as the government. And that those are actually slightly different roles. And those are, there's a unique tension between them in a moment of an emergency where as sort of the head of state, you have a role to show that you are safe and in control and that everything is going to be okay. Whereas as the head of government, your goal, you know, your most important role is to be 
uh, alive. And, you know, the, the preservation of the presidency is the, pres- is the preservation of democracy in the United States. I mean, that's why when you hear Secret Service agents talk, you know, they, they say, you know, no, no president is worth dying for, but the office of the presidency is. And so on Air Force One um, that morning, uh, President Bush is trying to head back to Washington and the Air Force and the Secret Service uh, are telling him he can't. And everyone sort of dances around very carefully uh, and thoughtfully ensuring that the president doesn't give a direct order to return to Washington such that the military pilot or the Secret Service have to consider whether to disobey a direct order. Um, You know, there is a argument uh, uh, that the Secret Service, for instance, is charged with uh, under federal law, protecting the president. And so in a moment like that, the Secret Service could actually consider a direct order from the president to return to Washington as being in the legal order that they don't have to follow. And, and sort of similarly for the, the colonel who is the pilot of Air Force One. And so everyone aboard that plane is very careful and very uh, cognizant of trying to make sure that President Bush never gives a direct order that would force people to wonder whether they should disobey him. Um, and, and eventually, of course, the plane ends up in Barksdale Air Force Base in Louisiana, goes on to Offutt Air Force Base in Shreveport, in, um, in Omaha, Nebraska, and then ends up uh, eventually heading back to Washington around 6 p.m. that day once all of the other planes have been grounded. The second sort of fascinating moment in terms of continuity and the presidency that day is Dick Cheney's shootdown order, um, which he is hustled down into the White House bunker, the President's Emergency Operations Center, the PIOC, as it's known, which is underneath the North Lawn of the White House. And Vice President Cheney, um, uh, around 10, 15 that morning, uh, is asked by the Pentagon via a military aide, um, a Navy commander named Anthony Barnes, who um, it, it, whether they can have permission to shoot down incoming hijacked airliners. And what is, uh, and, and Commander Barnes. Uh, by the way, knows sort of exactly how fraught this question is. Um, He asks uh, Vice President Cheney once. Cheney says yes. He asks Dick Cheney a second time. Cheney says yes. And eventually actually asks a third time. and, And Cheney sort of gets frustrated and says effectively, we don't have any choice. We have to take down any hijacked plane that's on its way to Washington. Now, what 
it, it, it unfolds as that conversation is happening around 1015 is it, it, it seems highly likely that Dick Cheney did not have presidential authority to pass that order along. Um, the 9-11 Commission was unable to determine that Dick Cheney had actually spoken to President Bush in order to get that permission that morning. Um, and in theory, the vice president should have no place in the military chain of command. Um, you know, he, he should not be allowed to give an order like that and have it be responded to by the military chain of command. Um, now, within a period of minutes thereafter, Dick Cheney and President Bush definitely spoke. Um, and he asked President Bush, and President Bush said yes. Um, it's not clear from President Bush's end of the conversation whether he understood that Dick Cheney had, had already given an order along those lines. It's not clear um, whether that conversation um, you know, predated or postdated Dick Cheney giving the order. Um, but it seems unlikely that it did. And so what you have in that moment is the US military responding to a vice presidential order uh, that technically is inoperable, uh, but because of the difficulty of reaching the president that morning, sort of people took it on faith um, that Vice President Cheney had the authority to do it. Um, and it, it's, a, it's a really interesting question of if that order had been acted upon, you know, how, what would the repercussions of that have been? I mean, part of the confusion of that morning is that that conversation takes place between 10.12 and 10.18 uh, that morning. And that unknown to everyone involved in that order and the vice president and the president, the last hijacked airliner had already crashed. United Airlines Flight 93 had crashed at 10.03 that morning. But uh, they, they were giving an order that was ultimately uh, never going to be used, um, although they you know, did not know that at the time. So it, it, it's a really interesting and challenging day in the context of presidential leadership. Absolutely. And, and you mentioned Flight 93, and I, I want to get into that just a little bit, uh, just because it's such a, a devastating story, but also a story of courage, right? The, the flight was hijacked, and it was headed for DC. I mean, you know, you also touched on, you know, those, those planes were going to be shot down through this vice presidential order, but, you know, fortunately or unfortunately, um, it, it did crash in Shanksville, Pennsylvania, because these brave passengers thwarted the attack. I just would love to get maybe an explanation about how that really went down, right? What, what was it like for the passengers on the plane? Um, but also, what was it like for the family members who were kind of waiting to hear what was happening to their loved ones in this 
this attempted communication between those sitting on the planes and their and their families on the ground. Yeah, uh, you know, one of the things that sort of uh, changes the course of that day is that Flight 93 uh, coming out of Newark Airport was delayed by about 45 minutes. And so what you had was a plane that should have been effectively on the same timetable as the others, um, but actually was running about 45 minutes behind. And so it the passengers and the crew aboard that plane had time to uh, call down to family members to call the United Airlines emergency operations number um, and to hear from people on the ground about what was actually transpiring and to sort of, to come to the horrifying realization that they were aboard a human missile. And they decide collectively as the passengers and crew to storm the cockpit and try to retake the plane or force it to the ground. And they have that opportunity because the plane was running late. And in, um, eventually, uh, as the plane is passing over Pittsburgh, uh, rush the cockpit and uh, the hijackers end up crashing the plane into a field in uh, just outside Shanksville, Pennsylvania. Um, you, you mentioned sort of the uncertainty of the target of Flight 93. Um, it, it seems uh, that the building was sort of like the, the target was likely either the White House or the Capitol. Most of the available evidence seems to indicate that the target was actually the Capitol, um, in part because uh, the Capitol is just such a larger easier to approach target than the White House, um, that it, it's the, the White House would, um, you know, geographically actually be very hard to hit uh, because of its size and the way it is hemmed in by taller buildings um, around the edge of the White House compound. Um, so it seems like it was likely headed to the Capitol. But uh, again, with the confusion and the chaos of that day, um, you know, one of the most striking quotes to me in my book research was a police sergeant from Indian Lake, the Indian Lake Police Department, which is one of the small communities near Shanksville, who ends up being one of the first police officers to arrive at the Shanksville crash site that day. And she finds herself there on the ground, um, really only knowing four facts. Um, you know, she knows that two planes hit the World Trade Center. She knows that one plane has hit the Pentagon. And she knows that the fourth plane has hit this particular field. And so she thinks... Um, in a way that is incredibly logical if you only have the set of facts that she had that morning. 
but sounds absolutely nuts to us now that we know the full scope of that day, that she it, she believes that there must be some secret government facility buried under that field um, because the terrorists crashed this fourth plane into that field. And she talks about how scared she was standing at the crash site, looking up into the sky, expecting to see other planes coming to crash into the field. You know, that she didn't know what the crash, what the target was, but she knew that multiple planes had targeted the, uh, uh, targeted the World Trade Center. And so she expected that multiple planes were going to target that field. And it's just such a fascinating time capsule in my mind of the weirdness of that day, the confusion of that day, and the chaos of that day. Um, because if you only know the things that she knew at that moment, it's actually a very logical thought progression she went through. And uh, I mean, one thing, I mean, of course, you said the entire day was filled with chaos, fear, trepidation, and so on. But in reality, the actual attacks were over by, well, 10 a.m. Eastern time. And that's 7 a.m. for someone, you know, waking up in Los Angeles. And I mean, for a lot of folks on the West Coast, that's well before they start their day, truly. And uh, I think one thing your book does well is it goes into these sub-events of September 11th. And uh, two particular sub-events I wanted to just touch on a bit are the actual collapse of the Twin Towers. And I mean, the Twin Towers were really just icons of the New York City uh the skyline, the landscape, and so on. And if you look at the archival footage for viewers, of course, uh, when the South Tower collapses, if you're watching ABC News, Peter Jennings or Charlie Gibson, whoever was uh, hosting that day, uh, there's a when the South Tower actually collapses, there's a level of shock. They don't believe that the entire tower has actually collapsed. And then when the North Tower collapses a bit later... It's almost as if it's expected, and it's just this nature of finality, shockingly, but just this strange sense. And uh, could you describe those two sub-events and what was happening on the ground by the people who were there, and the sounds and the sights of those two sub-events and what the feelings were when the South Tower collapsed and then the North Tower collapsed separately. Yeah, uh, again, um, you know, part of what was so surprising and shocking that morning is that the towers could collapse. That was not on the, you know, radar or in the imagination of most of the people who were either in the building or responding to that disaster as it unfolded that day. And so you have this very, uh, uh, you know, the, the fire department and the police department really only come to the realization that this building could fall um, and seems likely to fall um, a few minutes before the South Tower collapses at 9.59 and then the North Tower um, collapses at 10.29 that morning, um, bringing the day's drama to, 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 to a close. And um, 
it, you know, that the firefighters as they were arriving that morning were expecting that uh, effectively that the World Trade Center would just burn itself out and that it might take um, days for the fires to work their way up to the top uh, and, and burn themselves out. But the, most of the firefighters who went into that building that day uh, had no expectation that it could collapse. And that the um, there's sort of this amazing, there, there are these amazing stories that I capture in the book of, you know, people who dawdle in their offices um, in the North Tower uh, or in the South Tower. I mean, people who sit at their desks in the South Tower and watch the fires burn uh, in the North Tower across the World Trade Center complex. And, you know, sort of these, these decisions that when you read them now just seem like utterly unfathomable. And so one of the things that, um, it, you know, this all underscores is, again, this innocence, this sort of sense that, uh, Americans just didn't really understand the totality of what was possible that day because the idea, you know, now if you you had an incident like that, you know, everyone would run for the hills at the first possible moment. Um, and that day, I mean, it, it, you just sort of feel like, um, you, you know, you sort of want to reach through the pages of the book and shake these people and be like, no, 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 don't you understand? Like, you have to get out. You know, it's sort of like the uh, the creepy music playing in the background of the horror movie. Absolutely. I mean, it's certainly um, one of the most devastating days in American history. And as just a final question, Garrett, uh, how has 9-11 impacted the consciousness of the American people? What, what are the lasting impacts of that day, of these events uh, on the American people? Yeah, um, it, it's a great question. And the, the sort of short answer is it is hard to find an aspect of modern times that has not been deeply affected by 9-11. Um, and, um, it, you know, I, I think in many ways you can trace a direct line from the reaction in U.S. politics to 9-11 to the present day. Um, you know, here we are almost 19 years later, um, and the United States is still effectively at war in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, it, you know, the, the people who are now beginning to be deployed to Iraq and Afghanistan are fighting in a war that is literally older than they are. Um, which is something that America has never experienced in their history. Um, and it's, you know, I think worth remembering as we think back on that day, um, you know, just how much we are still living with the legacy of 9-11 today and just how much it has changed uh, our country and our our people and our national leaders. On that 
note, Garrett, uh, thank you so much for taking the time to uh, discuss this tragic day with us. Certainly, it was a very painful day for so many, but it was also a day highlighted with much heroism, much courage, and much inspiration on the parts of you know the firefighters, the policemen, and all of those first responders who saved so many lives that day. So once again, thank you for taking the time. Uh, for all of you listening, uh, if you want to keep track of Garrett's further work, you can follow him on Twitter at VermontGMG. Uh, check out his best-selling book, The Only Plane in the Sky, An Oral History 9-11. And you can learn more about Garrett by going to his website, GarrettGraff.com. So thank you. Thanks so much for having me. To hear other fascinating conversations, subscribe to the podcast and follow us on social media at Burnbag Pod. Thank you for listening. This is the Burnbag Podcast. <laughs>